Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with the biographer about his or her work. This time, the biographer Brian J. Jones. His latest book is titled Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination from Dutton. Brian's previous biographical subjects have been George Lucas, Jim Henson, and Washington Irving. I asked him how he chose his newest subject. That one was the result of a long conversation, a long lunch uh, meeting with my editor, my agent, because, it, you know, it's, it's one of those that you're, you're always trying to find the, the next subject that feels worthy of your previous subjects. And, you know, after I'd gotten done with Jim Henson, that was one where he, Jim Henson had worked with George Lucas. Was like, well, we got to do George Lucas next. But then as soon as you get done with that, then you're trying to find something that feels appropriate. And I was, you know, saying, well, I, I worked in politics. I worked on Capitol. I can do a president. Let's do, you know, let's do something bold. And, and my editor so great, very calmly says, and this is why I love him, well, I'm not saying no. Um, he said, but uh, that takes you off your shelf. And until that moment, I hadn't really thought I, I didn't really realize I had a shelf, uh, which, as you said, has sort of turned into these quirky American creative geniuses. American was accidental, but they've all been American so far. Uh, so once we once we hit on that, then, you know, then the ideas start coming. And, you know, I was saying earlier, like I'm trying to think of my next subject now and you start throwing stuff out and everything seems impossible and, you know, uninteresting. And then all of a sudden you hit the one that you, you say, my God, of course. Why wasn't that one the first one out of our mouth? So I think it was probably my, I think my agent's actually the one who put out this list that had Dr. Seuss on it. And everybody, all of a sudden we went, oh gosh, that's it. That's, that's, the, it's perfect. It's in your lane. Uh, it's in your wheelhouse. I know this is the kind of thing you do. Let's step back though. How mm-hmm. did you decide to start writing biography in the first place of all the things you could be writing? <laughs> and given your interesting background, yeah, in I politics. I started writing um, biography uh, because I wanted it was there was a book I wanted to read. Uh, and I got interested in Washington Irving in the mid-90s. I read this book called The Battle for Christmas, all about why Americans have these misty-eyed views of Christmas, and said it was because of Washington Irving. And, you know, I'd been an English major, and I barely remembered reading Irving. Um, but I went out, and I found all of his Christmas stories that he'd written, and thought, wow, that was really refreshing, and wow, that voice in there, very modern. I'd like to know more about this guy. And I even drove all the way up to his house in Sleepy Hollow. Well, it's in it's in. Terrytown um, to see if they had, and I mean, there wasn't a Washington Irving biography for sale in his home. So I knew there was nothing out there. And, you know, I, at that point, it's like, well, I want to, I'll write that book because I want to read about him. And so that was how I got into it. And it took me seven or eight years, I think, finally to do it. But it's because I thought, well, you know, I, I don't know how to do this. Um, I, you know, I don't know how one writes a biography, but it was a book that I wanted to read is how I got into it. But so you learned on the job, so to speak. I actually also bought The Idiot's Guide to Getting Published and went through that and learned how to write a query letter back in the days when you had to put stuff in the mail and uh, write a proposal. And so I took all those lessons out of that book and I wrote a long proposal for the Irving book and, and sold that book. Um, but it was one of those, yeah, you just, it's what, you know, it's what we still do to this day. When you don't know, you go out and you get a book and you read about it. And, you know, now you might Google it, but you, you figure out how to do it. Or you join bio. Or you join bio. Yeah, which is exactly, and I did the same thing as well. Bio, you know, I sold that book in 2000, 
So I think it came out in 2008, so it was before the first bioconference. Um, but I came in, you know, still wondering, like, how do you do this? Even though I'd done one, I really felt like I had no clue what I was doing. You, you always feel like you sort of backed into it. Well, that was very refreshing for me to hear other biographers always at this at this conference who have published many books, like you say, each time is completely different, right. right? Yeah. And in this particular book, the challenges were particularly unique because uh, Geisel was somebody who didn't, well, it's not that he didn't want to be known, but he had this sort of, he had this mysterious sort of other life. Is that right to say? <laughs> not or? necessarily. He was, he was happy being enigmatic. He, he you know, he, he, he always talked about how he didn't like to answer his front door because it was usually children coming and knocking. And he said they were disappointed when they saw him because they expected Dr. Seuss to have a funny hat and baggy pants. And he said they were always disappointed by how he looked just fairly normal. You know, his hair might have been messed up, but that was it. So I don't think he was necessarily had this hidden life, but he, and, and wasn't even necessarily private, but he always had a very Pat set of answers he had when people would interview him. And the other thing that I, was really interesting to me about him is um, he wasn't hugely famous most of his career. I mean, he, he hits it big with like his 13th book and he's already 50 years old. So, you know, he sat for interviews quite a bit in the early part of his career, but he usually sort of ran out the same stories and the same mytho- you know, the same myths. He said later in his career, you know, I keep reading these stories with these, you know, these, these half-truths, and unfortunately, they're usually half-truths that I started in the first place. So, uh, so he's one of these people that I don't think he necessarily was, you know, trying to hide from us, but he was not inclined to, you know, to make it easy. Mm-hmm. And to that end, uh, his archive is in San Diego, where he last lived his life. Is correct. that correct? Mm-hmm. You see, yeah. What were some of the challenges and obstacles that you faced in finding out more about him? Well, the biggest challenge I faced is um, because he, you know, he's an estate and those papers, although they're in a private institution, I believe they were donated. So they're not publicly held, per se. Um, So my access was actually severely restricted. Um, I was told that was the widow <laughs> who was doing that to people. Um, so, so they gave the papers, but they limited the access, yeah, which is curious, Yeah, right? and they've let, they've let you know, other researchers. I think one of the issues is there had been a, an earlier Seuss book uh, where they let another writer in who got free and mostly full access and then wrote a bit of a takedown. Mm. So I think then when I come along two or three years later, they thought, well, well you know, we're not going to fall for that again. So, uh, so I knew. I think they knew they had to deal with me. But um, you know, it's, it's frustrating because you can see everything they've got in their finding aid online. And so they said, okay, well, submit to us what you want. And I said, okay, I can see you've got box one through sixty-one. I want box one through sixty-one. And they would say, you know, you know, okay, box fourteen. It's his World War II with his World War II diary and his. And they and so I'd say, I want box fourteen. And they'd come back and they'd had me folder number nine. You know, and so it was like they were really, really parsing and policing it. It was, it was a little disappointing. Hmm. Yeah. And you, so you would show up and you didn't know that they were only going to give you a piece of the archive? Well, uh, they made me submit everything in advance uh, so they could have it ready when I got out there. Um, but I didn't know exactly how much of it I was going to get. I, I knew what I had submitted, but I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to get. You know, the first email I sent back, it was, you know, said I, want, I would like this, this, this. And the e- <laughs> it was a lot of work to do this. The email comes back and there's a lot of stuff highlighted in red. Restricted, 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 restricted. So, you know, again, at one point I was told, you know, sort of under the, you know, know, everyone whispering behind their hand, well, this is, you know, the widow is, 
you know, restricting access. I, Lord knows, but it was, it was a little frustrating. Uh, that said, there are Sioux scholars out there who, you know, who felt for me and, uh, you know, were very gracious with sharing their research and some of the documents that they had, you know, either taken notes from in the archives. So, you know, it's a, it's a small community, fortunately, and, and they were very helpful about it. How did you deal with research and writing? Are you a research then write person or how did that come I, I am a research then write person, much to the frustration of my wife, especially on this one, because, you know, I, I, it took me a long time to get into the archives. For a long time, they weren't even going to let me in. You know, the first emails I sent, uh, you know, blast shields went up. They just, they weren't even going to let me in at all. So it took a lot of finessing and conversation and, you know, sending them the press release when the book was announced, so they knew I was legit because somebody was saying, you know, people pretend they're writing books so they can poke around in the archives. So, you know, it was trying to make sure all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. So it took me a long time to get in the archives. And, you know, my wife was saying, well, you should just, you know, just start it. And I said, well, I don't want to do it because I said, the archive, they're in my head now, unfortunately, and I don't know what I'm going to find. And if I start something and then the archives blow that, I'm going to be, you know, devastated and it'll set me back over. So it was almost like I would rather have waited, you know, eight months to start writing than start writing eight months earlier and find out I was going to have to scratch everything I had. So it did, it took a long time to get ready because I like to at least have, at least have a look even in those archives, um, you know, before I start anything. I just, I, it, it's like a security blanket. I like to feel like I've at least seen the things that I'm going to be working on first before I start to write it. I remember talking with Kathy Curtis, the outgoing president of Bio, last year, and she said something that startled me, which is that she starts writing right away. Uh. She's writing the whole time, and that is fantastic. And she writes without selling mm-hmm. the book necessarily first. And so her methodology was completely different than what you're describing, which is why this is so interesting right. for me, because I learn everybody's so – there's no one way. Right. Everybody talks about, you know, how do you research? How do you organize? And my answer is always whatever works for you. Right, right. Just – source and right. don't plagiarize <laughs> and you should turn out okay right now that this is done how many years was it that you've worked on Seuss uh it was about three years yeah. all all in mm-hmm. so now it's out in the world so now what happens do you breathe or are you actively sitting around saying much to your wife's consternation <laughs> who is now going to move into our house uh no I, that's uh, you know I'm actually starting that conversation already it's one of those where you think well I'm going to give myself a little time to breathe but uh, you know I've been in town one day and I had breakfast with my agent agent to talk about it. And I had lunch with my editor to talk about it. We have arrived at nothing, but we've already started that conversation. So you like it enough to keep doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, the hard part of it is now, you know, one of the, one of the reviews of of the Dr. Seuss book said, you know, okay, Jones has completed the American trilogy of great creative genes. I thought, well, that was no pressure, I guess. Um, (laughs) You didn't even know. I didn't even know I was doing that. So, um, so who's next? I I don't know. So how, just because you're at this process, Mm -hmm. how do you start figuring out what's next? Uh, you know, I, I like to start figuring out. I usually start with, well, you know, who inspires me? Who do I like? And as you know, and as everyone listening to this also knows, you start you, you start making that list and then you realize, well, someone's doing that one or it was just done a year ago or it was done four years ago. That was done 10 years ago. Is that long ago enough now that I could do it? So, you know, you, you, you make your list and you start knocking them out immediately. Um, and, you know, of course, friends and family are always happy to offer up their suggestions for, you know, topics you should be doing. Because it's so easy. It's so easy, it's so easy right. to and offer they, you, the suggestions. You know who's great? You know who's great? 
David Bowie. David Bowie's, you know, they've always got, they've always got some idea they want you to do. Oh yeah. Usually people tell me people no one's ever heard of. Exactly. Some obscure person who I know would never sell a book. Right. And, and well, and, and mine is almost the opposite problem, which is weird because I've done big names. So right. people start throwing these big names out. You know, you should do, you should do Elton John. You know, well, I think someone, someone, he's been done several times. Anyway, it's one people, they're very, they're trying very hard to be helpful, which is awesome. But it's, you know, they just start throwing out every famous person you've ever heard of. Prince. Exactly. Well, I, I actually got, yeah, somebody <laughs> told me I should do prints. Well, we're looking at geniuses from the 20th century. What are the other things that you find people don't understand about writing a biography? For instance, someone said to me last week, I don't understand why you have to sit in front of a a computer. Why can't you just do translation software? And I thought, wow, that is a very intelligent person who just literally has no sense of how this crazy process works. So are there other things that you find? Probably two things. I think people don't understand how hard it is to keep all your, like we have to be very diligent, those of us who you know want to be sure we're doing everything right, mm-hmm. about uh, making sure everything's sourced and keeping those notes organized. And when you're typing them, how do you, like I tend to start as I'm typing and I put my quotes and I actually put in brackets my reference right there. So it's always held right there in place. Um, but everybody just, but that's, you know, people don't understand that we have to make sure we track that. And I can't tell you how many times, that's probably three, but but that I've actually had to knock a quote out because I was careless in my citing. And I had one quote that was so great, I think I had named a chapter after it. And then as I was going through even the copyrighting phase, I went, uh-oh, I didn't, I didn't hold the source in there. And so I had to just throw the quote out because I could never track down the source again. You know, how we have to be diligent about that. The other thing I think people are shocked at is they don't understand that we pay for everything in that book. Uh, you know, we everything, everything between the covers, we're paying for it for the unless we want to do it ourselves. Of course, indexing. I don't index myself. It's not a superpower I have. I know there are many bio members that can, but you, you know, we pay for that. We pay to clear photos. Um, you know, we pay to go do the research. You know, we're not being. People tend to think, oh, you're doing a biography, and your publisher must be flying you around the world and <laughs> taking you to Oh, you got to go out to California. Your publisher put no. It's like, you know, when I was doing the Jim Henson book, I would take the train up and I would, you know, get a really cheap, you know, weekly rate hotel in Long Island City which is not glamorous and, you know, stay there for three weeks. And I would walk and I would eat, you know, my breakfast. I'd buy food at the 7-Eleven. And then I would work in the archives there all day and stay at the, you know, across from the White Castle that night or whatever. You know, it's not terribly glamorous, but like because that all comes out of our pocket. You have to make that first part of your advance do all the work. You've got to do all your work on that part of your advance. People don't understand that we're paying for that out of pocket. And you're even paying for it to get to the point where you can get an advance. Correct. Right. right. So. Yeah. Um, and you work a full-time job, too? Do you do, do you have a day <laughs> I've been life? Off and on. You know, I'm off and on, but I, you know, I was working full-time when I was doing the George Lucas book and the Jim Henson book. Uh, Dr. Seuss, I was I, I was at home for most of the time doing that one, but I'm, you know, I'm back full-time again. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm usually, I'm usually off and on. And, um, that was the hardest part. You know, my wife at one point, unbeknownst to me, had called my agents like, he's going to kill himself. He's going to kill himself. Cause I, I would come home from working my day job in politics. I was working in, you know, County politics at that time, but mm. you know, I'd get home at seven o'clock at night and I would start writing. I'd break for dinner with my wife, work till two o'clock in the morning, get up at 6am and go to work and start all over again. And but, you know, we all do this. Uh, you hear stories of people like I would drop my kids off at school and I would sit in the car for an hour and I would write out longhand. Everybody's got stories about this. Um, but, you know, it's, it, you know, it's one of those odd things. It's we do in a way feel compelled to tell these stories. I mean, it's really cool. It's cool and it's exhausting and it's immersive and wow. Yeah, yeah I mean, you can't imagine, you, you know, you always hear people who are great novelists and I'm not wired to be a novelist. I have no brain for fiction, but they always say, well, I write because I can't imagine not writing. And I always say, well, you know, we tell the stories of others because we can't imagine not telling that story. Right, right. So 
Are you anxious until you find the next one, or what yes. do you think? No, yeah. I'm, I'm always anxious because we, you know, you always want to be, you always want to be working on something. You always want to be telling, telling something. You know, I, I once joked uh, that uh, you know at the bio conference, the only other conf- we're the only other conference apart from the adult video news conference where we could walk up to each other and say, "Hey, who are you doing? Who are you doing?" <laughs> uh, you know, but and so like we want to have an answer to that. So someone comes, "Who are you doing?" You want to be able to say, "Oh, I'm just starting this," or you know, "I have this project." So you like to at least have an answer to that. Even it takes the pressure <laughs> off. Well, I look forward to hearing who you're doing. (laughs) I look forward to knowing, too. And now, Brian J. Jones reads from Becoming Dr. Seuss at the 10th Annual Biographers International Conference opening night at the Fabri Mansion in New York City on May 17, 2019. So Holly took us to 1943. I'm going to bring it to 1954, where Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, has been challenged by the publisher William Spaulding to write me a bestseller a first grader can't put down. The catch, however, is he can only use the pre-approved, educator-endorsed word list of about 300 words or less. You may not deviate from the list. All I needed, I figured, was to find a whale of an exciting subject which would make the average six-year-old want to read like crazy, he said later. But none of the old dull stuff. Dick has a ball. Dick likes the ball. The ball is red, red, red. Instead, he was thinking up much more exciting subjects, like climbing Mount Everest, where he suggested it could be 60 degrees below zero. It was a truly exciting idea, he thought. However, as he scanned the word list, he discovered you can't use the word scaling, you can't use the word peaks, you can't use the word Everest, you can't use the word 60, and you can't use degrees. When stymied, Geisel would kick back in the chair at his desk and chain smoke for hours as he stared absently out the window at the Pacific, waiting for inspiration. Other times, he would simply doodle, drawing one crazy creature after another to see if anything sparked an idea, or lay down on the sofa in his office and thumb through books and magazines. (laughs) Copies of On Beyond Zebra were still stacked on his coffee table, and Geisel thought at first he might write a story about a queen zebra. I snuck a look at the word list, he said. Queen and zebra weren't there. (laughs) It was, he said, an impossible and ridiculous task, but he would keep trying. Geisel had been staring at Spaulding's word list for the better part of a year, still looking for something to jumpstart his imagination, but the words still weren't coming. Some afternoons when Helen, his wife, came into the studio to check on him, she would find him lying on the couch, moaning or thrashing about, (laughs) as if he were trying to physically force an idea into his head. Sitting for an interview in early 1956, Ted often hinted that he was at work on three supplementary textbooks for the first, second, and third graders. Most of that was untrue. He was barely at work on one. Spaulding would likely have been heartened at the way Ted passionately explained the objective of his textbooks, which was to make their first experience in reading pleasurable, not difficult. Unfortunately, the noble motivation wasn't making the writing any easier. It took me a year of my getting mad as blazes and throwing the thing across the room, he said. Stuck, he decided to make another quick pass through the list. I finally gave it one more chance, recalled Geisel, and said, if I find two words that rhyme and make sense to me, that's the title. But even that approach didn't work out as he had hoped. A tall ball wasn't all that encouraging as the subject of a children's story. And other words that seemed promising for characters, such as daddy, didn't rhyme with anything on the list. I was forbidden to use any words beyond the list, Geisel said later. I almost threw the job up. He went back and read the list one more time, slowly and more deliberately. And then suddenly, there was his story in two rhyming one-syllable words. Cat. Hat. And like a genius, Geisel said later, I said, that's the name. 
That's writer Brian J. Jones. My conversation with him was recorded on Saturday, May 18th, 2019, at the Leon Levy Center for Biography at the City University of New York's Graduate Center during the 10th Annual Biographers International Conference there. This conversation was recorded on Saturday, May 18th, 2019, at the Leon Levy Center for Biography at the City University of New York's Graduate Center during the 10th Annual Biographers International Organization Conference there. To learn more, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio. Bye.